0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Mark Marin does it all. He's a stand up comic, an actor, and. He's the host of one of the biggest podcasts out there, WTF. Mark was a comic for decades before he got into podcasting. He'd work the road, get a TV gig every now and again. But as he got closer to middle age, it just didn't seem like a sustainable life. So he took a job doing morning radio. That show got canceled. He got another one. That one got canceled. But his key card still worked. So he and his old producer started sneaking into the office at night and making a podcast. That show was WTF. A few months in, Mark moved to L.A., started recording in his garage. A few months after that, he was a phenomenon. WTF became one of the most important podcasts the medium has produced. But Mark didn't leave stand-up behind. Far from it. His new special is called From Bleak to Dark. Mark's stage work has always been personal. This time around, he had to deal with some particularly heavy stuff. The pandemic, of course, but also the death of his partner, Lynn Shelton. She died of cancer in 2020. The special, though, isn't sad, per se. In fact, Mark seems as comfortable within himself as he's ever been. Able to be frank and vulnerable on stage, but also a little bit silly. Not a lot but a little. It's some of his best work. I do want to mention that we talk about Lynn Shelton's passing and dealing with grief more generally in this conversation. So be prepared if that's a sensitive subject for you right now. I get it. Now, usually we would have Mark Marin come to us at our studio, but they were sanding the floors in our office building. So we went out to his place. It's always great to see an old pal, doubly so when you get to pet his cat's. Let's get into it. Mark Marin, welcome to Bullseye. Welcome back to Bullseye, I should say. It's nice to talk to you. It's been a long time, there, Jesse. And thank you for uh, having me here in your studio, uh, because the floors at our studio are being powder blasted. Not a something. great sound in the
0: background. Not a good, uh, not good for audio.
1: I understand it's like recording at LAX. I was told, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> thank you also for bringing a pomelo uh-huh. to the recording.
0: I, you know, I I was told it was promoted as a, a pink grapefruit, and and it does seem to have the husk of a pomelo, but I believe it is a pink grapefruit. It tastes like a pink grapefruit.
1: Pomelos taste a little different, don't they? I'm not. Look, I'm not a citrus expert. You Will want me to talk the word pomelo. You want me to talk to, to you about yuzu's. Yeah, you want me to talk to you about Satsuma's? Ah, oh. um, well, Mark, let's do yeah. a radio show. Okay, this is such a beautiful house, a beautiful studio. Thank you. Do you feel like a success? Yes, I do. Really? Yeah, I'm yeah. so happy to hear that. <laughs> well, you started it all. You,
0: are still. <laughs> you started it. To be fair, I just happened to be present. But you, uh, we're still using the mics that you told me to buy. But uh, yeah, I feel like uh, a success. I, I
1: think if I didn't, it would be rude. Yeah. I mean, that's true, Mark. But so much of your identity was built on not being a success that sometimes it can be hard to turn that corner.
0: Right, or or at least not acknowledging that I was success. Because there are some people that insisted I was doing fine all the way through. But I don't know what they think fine is. I don't
1: know, doing Conan 20
0: times. Yeah, but I mean, that what did that get me? It just get me, you know, uh, uh, fun hanging out with uh, Conan for a few minutes, talking to Frank Smiley or or Daniel uh, Ferguson on the phone about the segment. I remember there was a time there when Trump was on with me and uh, Frank Smiley was uh, in my dressing room. The segment producer goes, you want to meet Trump? And I'm like, I don't really. <laughs> I, I really don't. And I knew why. I did. I knew then. But yeah, I mean, but I wanted to think of that as success, but ultimately, you know, it didn't get me a following. I couldn't sell tickets. I was only, you know, I'd make whatever the, you know, five, $600, $500 to $800 for the spot on Conan, but it didn't ripple. Like it didn't, you know, I felt like I was a success because I could be on TV, but it wasn't making a living.
1: Really? Yeah. I, I mean, mean but, oh. obviously going on Conan wasn't making you a living. You were doing it twice a year. But you oh, three were, or four times a year. But you, sorry, Mark, it's okay. But you were making a living doing comedy, barely dude, weren't you? Barely. Like
0: I really, you know, by the when I started the podcast, two thousand and nine, I didn't have an audience. I couldn't sell tickets. I was a, yeah, I was a known person in comedy, but I wasn't someone you would the club would promote and people would come flocking to. I was just, you know, I was looking down the barrel of a of a yeah, kind of unknown headliner status in a way. So I, I was not making that much money. I would pick up money through deals here and there, this and that. But no, I don't think that before I started the podcast up through a couple years of it, I, I, w- I wouldn't say that I was solvent
1: in a confident way. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Did you feel as good and comfortable with the work you did on the radio, as you felt as a stand up? Like, did you feel like being on Air America or eventually starting WTF yeah. was like something you were doing while you were trying to make your number one thing that made you solve in stand up? Or were you like, oh, this is also an art form I'm doing? That took a while uh, in the sense that um, from Air America,
0: that was where I learned that I had the talent for it. Yeah, you know, it's not everybody that can make this work, though. Everybody thinks they can. They assume that, like, hey, it's just guys talking, you know, I can talk. But who the hell knows what makes someone compelling as a broadcaster in this format? So I knew I kind of had that. But I once I got to starting the podcast, I thought it was a Hail Mary pass. I mean, I didn't really know what it would yield, but I did know that I could do this. I knew that, that I was compelling in this format. I don't know if I, I I appreciate it as an art form. I, it took me years to 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 let go of the idea that people were not really knowing me for my stand-up, that I had spent my life uh, working on my stand-up. And I was a good stand-up, but I was not known for that. And when I started getting known for the podcast, you know, people would be like, oh, I guess he's doing this show. We should go support him. I'm like, no, I know how to do that. I'm not looking for support. But eventually it all kind of... Like it's very uh, significant to me uh, this special that I just put out from bleak to dark, because over the course of the um, podcast, I've done a few specials and I've gotten more audience from, you know, people knowing me in a fairly intimate way on the podcast and then, you know, coming around to my comedy. But I feel like. The last two specials, and this one in particular, is really my sort of moment of like, yeah, this is what I do. This is what I set
1: out to do. I have to say this. I've watched you perform many times over the years. And mostly because I live here in L.A. or I would see you when my wife was in college in New York. Yeah. You know, go see you at at New York things. And, you know, in alt rooms, as they say. You weren't usually doing your... Uh current road act sure you know what i mean you doing yeah. different stuff or yeah i got the impression from the audience that your greatest satisfaction didn't come from doing the stuff that got the absolute most laughs the stuff that killed the hardest mm. but rather from coming at something that would Be weird and uncomfortable for the audience, either because of its intimacy or the subject matter, whatever, and getting good laughs out of that. Sure.
0: Well, I mean, I think that was at that time finding, you know, how to own that space for myself. And I tell people this who get into comedy, you know, when they're starting out, what they should do is like, do whatever you want. You know, figure out what part of you lives up there and how to own that space and how you want to occupy it. I mean, that's what you're doing. So I think during most of my life early on, whether it was through anger or through uh, too much information, you know, I was able to sort of, you know, kind of demark a pretty wide space for myself to operate in. Now, if I want to get, I think in the special, there's some solid, you know, just laughers, And, you know, I really embrace that part, you know, over the last few years of doing these specials and realizing, you know, that most people know me as a comic or as a podcaster. Now, some people just know me as an actor that, you know, I've got to step up my game in terms of really focusing on on the stand up in a way that I don't know that I had before. Because if you watch like Thinky Pain, you know, that's loose, man. And that was a choice. I'm going to go up there with some papers. I'm going to ramble on a bit. I'm going to leave a lot of room to improvise. It's going to be an hour and a half. I'm going to have Lance Bangs direct it. But then, you know, after that, I'm like, no, you know, screw this. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm putting callbacks in. I'm putting structure in. There's going to be through lines. There's not going to be redundancies. And I'm going to move through stuff that's challenging and make it as effective as possible. Why is what's the difference from why? Because. I don't want to be perceived as sloppy or, or an alt comic or any of this other stuff. Why you not? Know, because I came up in comedy clubs. You know, I mean, my goal when I started was to be a headliner, was to be a great comic. And if you really sort of assess, you know, whatever alt was, there's not a lot of lasting careers out of it. And a lot of them don't even do stand up anymore. Whereas if I go to the comedy store,
1: those are the people. We're the people doing the comedy. What was it like for you, a guy who had the idea that you were just going to be an individual swashbuckler for the rest of your life, conquering audiences across this nation with your? Sadly,
0: by the time I started the podcast, you know, I was not a swashbuckler. I, you know, I was looking at a future of like uh, uh, an individual, uh, sad, angry person
1: that you know could maybe fill half a house in some cities. You're just like, how many shows at Largo? Can I do to pay my rent? He, I <laughs> like, don't think I he really. I can,
0: right, that that would have been somewhat uh, it. I can uh, do
1: Luna Lounge. Can right. I do that once a week? Right, because that would make rent. <laughs> yeah, I lived that life, and I
0: and I thought about that life, and I wasn't really willing to live that life. But it it wasn't a sacrifice. It everything was out of uh, de- desperation or or being compulsive. I'm not. I, I'm not a long game guy. I you know I, I you know I don't know. What's going to happen tomorrow? I know I got to go to New York, and it's, I I don't know if it's a mental problem, but it was it was never a plan other than you know how do I continue to stay in the game here, whatever that is. Even when I wasn't in the game, at least I was you know getting up on stage and doing a thing. But you at a certain age you start to realize like this is getting away from me. I see how this ends badly. I know what it looks like in other people. I know who's disappeared and who hasn't, and like and what I'm willing or not willing to do. But you don't know how to get out right after a certain point where are you going to go i don't know man i just there was never a plan and what unfolded was out of sort of desperation and 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 there was some kind of perfect storm around so what did it take for you to feel some security well you know as uh, you know we tried to do what you did at the beginning you know like just begging for money one way or another Sending people some stickers or a T-shirt. I still they,
1: I still do that.
0: Mark. I'm sorry. How's the past tense? I still
1: do that. <laughs> this is a public radio program. Mark. Okay. okay I'm sorry. I I support I public radio. Audience supported podcast network. Yeah.
0: I I I support. Jesse and all his endeavors. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I just I got- appreciate I appreciate your vote of confidence. I could, I
1: could, just $5 I just, a month and you get access to a treasure trove of bonus What do you content. want? You want cash? I got- You want cash? Thank Can you, you. break a 10? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but- <laughs> But, uh, no, I mean, I got tired of stuff in envelopes and we didn't really know how to monetize. But, uh, well, I think in stand-up, somehow or another, and it wasn't as long ago as you think- I realized in a very real and deep way that, you know, I was not afraid anymore. You know, you spend a lot of time as a performer pretending not to be afraid. I think maybe I'm generalizing, but I did. Uh, and, and not sort of, you know, sabotaging yourself in terms of like, Oh, they don't sound good. What am I? And something happened in the last decade or so because people were, were coming around and because I could sell tickets and I was playing venues that were specific and it was my show where my comfort level just sort of took over and I realized like when I got to a venue, I'd go out on the stage and, and I knew that like th- this is my life and this is a part of me that lives out here and I'm, I wasn't afraid of it anymore. So th- once that fear went away, I had comfort there. Whether, you know, I, I was happy to be making money, but it was more important that, you know, I wasn't freaking out or angry about what I was assuming the audience was going to think or whether I sold tickets or whether the jokes would
1: work, all that sh- when you got to that place, did you worry that you were no longer going to be the kind of comic that you aspired to be—that could uh, a club comic that could defeat any audience? Because when you were going out there, you were performing for an audience that already wanted to like you. Yeah, well, I can push back on that too. It was going Don't, don't tur- underestimate my my skill set. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turn I- into like late period John Stewart Daily Show where there's so much applause that it's like. It was a good program, but like hard to tell what's good, I'm sure, when you're on stage.
0: No, I I think that they make me work for it. You know, like on that special even, like I did two shows on uh, From Bleak to Dark. In the first show, they were very excited. And the second show, they, you know, I had to earn it. And that's the one we used. So I never got, I know they're there to see me, but that annoys me. So, I have to sort of like find a middle zone because I can't fully accept all the love, but I worked on it, and i I'm able to a little a, a, a little bit more now uh but no i i don't I don't think it takes away from the type of comic I am because I still insist on doing certain things that there is going to challenge even the people that love me, and that's just the nature of who I am
1: We've got more to get into with Mark Marin. How do you get behind a mic when someone you love just died? I asked Mark that's coming up. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is comedian Mark Marin. When his partner died of cancer, he had to figure out how to move forward. With his life and with his work, he had to go back behind the mic. As it turned out, working on his show WTF... Was just what he needed to do. Let's get into the rest of our conversation. I thought it was interesting watching your new special that it was reflective of your core value of defying the audience to laugh, even though you're doing something that's going to make them really uncomfortable. Yeah. But, you know, for a special that's about, you know, where a third of the runtime is about your partner dying. Yeah. It is not as intimate as some of your other specials. Like you lean into the darkness, but there's not the kind of defiant, like, ha, ha, ha. I I bet you can't believe I'm saying this Uh intimate thing about my life out loud. Well, I had to balance it. And
0: it's very specific in this special that the the first 20 minutes was things i had to address culturally and it was if it, it feels like a responsibility to me because of the legacy i i claim and the comics that i respect that you know this is something that's important you know it is it is something that used to be at the forefront of what I did in and 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 I felt like I had to discuss that. But it also worked in a couple of different ways. It almost that first 20 minutes is almost its own thing. Right. And then when I get into aging, that's relatively intimate. And then when I talk about my father and his dementia, that's very intimate, but not specifically about me other than how I'm handling it. And um and then, you know, all the stuff around Lynn passing away quickly and tragically in the middle of COVID you know, it took a long time to process that. And I don't know that I've ever done anything as as vulnerable because I had no control over the grief for a long time. So doing that stuff and deciding to, like even when I did the podcast, you know, that was days after she died and and I didn't have to do that. But I chose to get on the mics, you know, in shock, devastated and and full on PTSD and unable to control it because I thought it would be important to other people. I thought it would help other people. So I became, because my grief was so solitary because of COVID and, you know, the way I handled it and how people, they did step up, it was weird and awkward. And I think grief is like that anyways, but I think figuring out how to present that experience, uh, took a long time because, you know, when I was first workshopping it, you know, I would cry. It would be just, there was the sadness was, uh, you know, unharnessable. And through my commitment to working through it and hope that comedy would come, you know, that mid- middle section of the special is is pretty, you know, finely balanced because the sadness is a given. So ultimately what you start to work with, and it's not that I was conscious of this, is is balancing it in a way that would make it, you know, not only palatable, but, but somewhat relieving and helpful to people uh, either who have experienced that kind of tragedy or living in grief. Or, or to sort of, you know, get set up for it. So I think the intimacy of me visiting the body of the woman I love is, is probably more weirdly intimate than anything I've ever said. And, and the risk of it was well, much higher. You know, to make that work,
1: that particular part of the special, that was, you know, that was not easy. Did you consider whether you were going to talk about it on stage at all? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, what do you do with that? I mean, it's like I said in the
0: special, I said, look, you know, I mean, I talk. I literally say that I didn't know if I could do it, but let's, let let me get serious. You know, she, she did die and it was, and it was a terrible tragedy and the, the truth is like, I'm a guy who talks about his life. So I, I, I wasn't clear how that was going to go. How am I going to talk about that? You know, is that ever going to happen? Is there a way to, 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 to bring humor to that? Because, you know, I'm not really the kind of guy that's like, she's dead. What are the bits? Let's get going, you know? And I thought, is there other formats? Because, you know, I'm a guy that, as you know, I talk about my life. So how, how do I do that? And it's something that it was very public. So how do I do that? It felt like I had no choice. Because of the nature of the type of performer I am, both on these
1: mics and on stage. I had an experience where when when my daughter told me and my wife that uh, she was a girl, mm. and I had referred to her as a boy on just telling s- silly stories yeah. about her childhood, and I had to go on one of my shows and say, like, it took me a while, we waited a long time, but like... I had to go on the show and say, like, yeah, just so you know, remember all those stories that I told? Those were about my daughter. Yeah. And people were like, well, how could you say that? You know, like, how could you, you know, make that such an intimate thing? Like, I don't know, because it would be completely bonkers if... I'd said a kid say the darndest things thing about my son one month and then two months later about my daughter. And they'd think I traded one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And like your partner was a public person. She was a very successful director. Yeah. And it was news that she had died. Yeah. It was news that the two of you were partners yeah. like it's not like that was a right. secret right and so to some extent you have to figure out how to address this publicly because not addressing it is just as public
0: right and and what happens is you start to become a a um like people look at you differently and you know i didn't want you know people's sympathy you know i wanted her to have it i didn't want it you know i didn't want people to be uncomfortable about addressing the fact that it happened to me or, or look at me like, oh, it's, I hope he's, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't the victim. So like, I felt that it was necessary for myself to own the feelings and, and explore grief, you know, publicly, you know, because I think there's nothing more inevitable. And I think on some level, everybody is grieving something. Uh, and it's, and it's culturally the easiest thing to push aside you know, and it feeds. I think the nature of our economic system to repress all that
1: pain. To feel better, you want to buy stuff, eat things. <laughs> um, my buddy uh, Laura Kill is a great stand-up
0: comic. Well, I'm sure you know. That's it. well. She's another one, man. She, you know, the all the stuff on the death of her parents at different times. Uh, she's like a, a, a forerunner of, of addressing this stuff in 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 an angry space. Uh, and it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's real uh, courageous work to sort of frame grief in a way that people can manage it. And I, that was always what I loved about standups is that they could take anything and frame it in a way that makes it more understandable. It makes it uh, re- you get relief because it's funny and it disarms, you know, some of the most terrifying things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. That was what made
1: me feel better. That's an interesting, so I've heard you use that description before, and I think it is a really interesting one, that what you're doing as a stand-up is not lightening or deflating something that's big or important, which I think is how often things are described. Yeah. But framing it so that it can be more comfortably seen. Yeah. Like, I, as somebody who has never absorbed, I, I have never had the skill that they tell you to do in school, which yeah. is like break big tasks into small tasks yes. and write them down on a piece of paper so the paper's holding it and not yeah. you. Yeah. Right? No, like, yeah. to me, a, if there's too even... many, if there's a big task, I can either solve it all at once together or it's going to weigh on me for the rest of my life. Yeah, right? I never knew that. I, that's such a great idea. I mean, I'm just sort of like, it's a constant unfolding. Yes. Y- you know, like, Yes, it's sort of like... I'm a very aware because this is my life. Yeah. But what you're describing as a sano comic is putting something into a context into which it can be understood and absorbed. Yeah, um, and simplifying it and that the that making it funny is not about diminishing it or even making it more important. tricky it's, though. It's a way of giving you some comfort with engaging with it.
0: Yeah, but diminishing is is tricky because you got to be careful with that when there's other people involved and one of them's dead. You know, or you're you're making light of something. I mean, you know, diminishment and uh, sort of you know punching down or or being disrespectful. I mean, all that's in the same world. But diminishment, you know, can be mild. But like I had to you know make some real decisions around you know processing
1: this stuff publicly because she's got family. She's and got you a, didn't have much relationship with her family.
0: No, and I didn't stuff. because yeah, uh, you know, I didn't know them. We were newly public. Uh, you know, we only had you know, the ability to choose to, you know, be public after a while, but it was, it was a fairly new relationship. I've known her for years, but certainly not as many, not as much as, well, I guess everybody has, you know, family and people have known them 20 years, 30 years, but, but you know, like I was the one that was associated with her publicly and it be, it becomes a responsibility. And and I've dealt with this with my father too, in the sense of like, and girlfriends, look, if if you're going to say something, you have to realize that the person you're talking about, you know, doesn't have a platform to respond to it. So you better think about what you're saying and and, and be respectful if that's what you want to be. And in Lynn's case, she very much could not respond because she's dead. So it was, you know, to balance the respect and not be dismissive. There's one joke in that special where. I'd only done it maybe once, maybe I might've just happened that night that, that sets up that section. And it's a real, almost, it's the, it's one of the most Jewish delivered jokes I've ever heard in my life that when I say, you know, the day that she died was a, was a terrible day for me. I'm sure her too. And, you know, <laughs> but, but it almost felt callous in retrospect. I'm like, should we leave that? in? I'm like, yes, because, because that's okay. It's okay. Because so you're going to follow it with, with, with a sincere investigation. You know, that little cute joke that was almost like, how could I not do it? It was
1: right there. Would seem callous if that was the only joke I did about it. We've got more of my conversation with Mark Marin still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Mark Marin. He's a stand up comic and the host of the podcast, WTF. So I'm 41 years old, and I don't think I had ever managed in my life to ask anyone for emotional support other than once in a while my wife. Yeah. I'm similar. When I went through some terrible things a few years ago during the pandemic... I found myself having to call friends and just like cry yell at them. Yep. Which was something I had never done. Yep. Considered to that to be I didn't have the like all men must be stoic thing, yeah. but I believed it was wrong to put my friends through that or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I felt like it was an undue burden to them or something like that. I can't put my finger on what I thought of it, why I didn't do it, but that it, I didn't want to make their lives harder. I didn't or trust people with the vulnerability,
0: you, you know, like w- in general, when, when you're that vulnerable and, and with grief or, or with, you know, real, when you're up against a wall where you, you really can't control your feelings. I guess you and I are people that, you know, put a lot of energy into controlling them, but when you can't, uh, the sort of desperate vulnerability of that is—it's just terrifying—and you're not sure what you expect out of people, or or whether they're gonna, you know, actually make you feel better. But you just hope that they won't hurt you more or judge you. I mean, I think it's a—it's a defensiveness. You know, I—I don't—I wasn't really afraid of the burden uh, necessarily. It was just sort of like, you know, I—I I didn't want to need help, uh, in general. I don't love. When you know I'm too vulnerable because my experiences I'll be manipulated or or hurt, and that might be a very old experience at this point, and probably something I don't need to be afraid of. But with with grief, or, or, or it seems with what you're talking about, you you know you're you no longer have the resources within yourself to manage it. So you know, and you know, then self harm becomes a problem, the possibility of it, or 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 actually hurting others because of the pain you're in. So fortunately, with death, especially one that was public, the community outpouring of support and condolence and check-in was overwhelming. Like I could not even believe it. You know, that these people, you know, I don't I even know them in my community. You're calling me up, seeking me out. To see how I was doing, you know, guys that, you know, this is the thing you' saying earlier about standups, you know, a bunch of guys who are, are like, you know, who are socially awkward or, or, or don't want to fit in anywhere, you know, to every one of them, you know, and I'm talking, you know, a hundred, you know, checked in on me, you know, and that's what people do. And it's enough. Doesn't, they, it doesn't require any emotions for them to just, you know, say, hey.
1: You know, people send him food. That was, I was driving down Figueroa Boulevard in Uh Highland Park, Los Angeles yesterday. And I thought about when things were very hard in my life. My friend, Julia Smith, used to produce this show. Right. Sent some ice cream to my house. Oh, it's the best. And Julia didn't even, I had not talked to, Julia knew something was going on, but she didn't know what it was even. I hadn't talked to her about it. It yeah. was the pandemic. I wasn't, you know, wasn't seeing anyone in real life or anything. And I'm driving down Figueroa Boulevard two and a half years later. And I started crying yeah. out of gratitude <laughs> for <laughs> Julia sending me some ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. And it occurred to me that like, you know, my friend Ben didn't need to fix my pain. Yeah. It was just really nice of him to be there, right? To be present for That's it. That's it. And just be like, well, you know, let's let me know. Here. I'll bring some soup or sure. something,
0: right? You know, yeah. Just let's just sit. And that was the hard thing about the pandemic too. Like, not a lot of people would come. My brother came out right away. Some people would uh, show up in the yard, masked, and give me a hug, you know. But, but yeah, it 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 was really, it was really helpful, you know, just to have people. Sit for a minute, you know, and, and hold the space a little bit, you know, and I couldn't control the crying. Like, like I went out to New Mexico. I thought like, I just go up to the mountains and I saw my buddy Devin, who I just saw uh, last weekend, you know, I just was, I couldn't, you know, we went out to lunch and I just could not stop the crying. I mean, it was unbelievable. It would just take over, but you know, and they, and I'd feel kind of embarrassed in a moment, but then they just, they know what's up.
1: You know, it's what you're supposed to be doing, right? It's also must be challenging to go through something like that and be a public person and you have some kind of responsibility to hundreds of thousands of people. Right. You don't know what that, you're not sure what that is
0: or. I kind of knew what it was. You know, and I, and I decided to, to keep showing up for them in the state that I was in. it was also, you know, my producer, Brendan, you know, we, you know, we had this commitment, this weird kind of like two new shows a week, no matter what. And, but he called me after Lynn died or we were on the phone. He's like, we don't have to ever do another one again. You don't have to do it Monday. You don't have to do it Thursday. We don't have to ever do anything. You know, this is, you know, I, I don't remember how he put it. I mean, but. You know, it's one of those things that happens in your life where, you know, nothing's ever going to be that horrible, you know. But he was like, yeah, whatever you want. And I'm like, well, let's do it. Let's post the episode with Lynn, like we usually do when someone passes, and and I will speak. And I haven't listened to that. It's got to be horrible, messy, painful. I can't listen to that.
1: I got to say, I was... um I just finished a tour with my, uh, partner, John Hodgman, yep. non-romantic partner. Yep. And though he's a romantic guy, I think. he is, he is quite a romantic, <laughs> um, literarily speaking yeah. and in this show, I would sing a song to talk about my dad who died during the pandemic, sing this song Yeah. and then in this show, I would, you know, thank the audience for being there cause I was so grateful to be there in front of the audience every, yeah. every time on this tour, just so yeah. just filled with gratitude.
0: That's what, but that's what I'm telling you about the tour.
1: And I would just say like when my life was falling apart to, in a way that I had never even imagined it could yeah. that John and my other partner, Jordan and yeah. you know, Kevin, the producer of this show all said to me, You know, you don't have to do the show. We'll figure it out. You don't have to do the show. And people will understand. People will understand. And they would have. No doubt about it. Of course. And what I said, I mean, there were times that I literally physically could not. But generally speaking, I was like, I love
0: it. But that's where we feel safe. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, calling friends and crying. Or asking for help. No, but like, we have this audience that is there for us.
1: Well, Mark, I'm so grateful to get to talk to you always. It's yeah. always nice to see you. Thank you for having me over to your house. Well, thank you for doing your show from this location. Well, I'm glad to do it. Please thank, thank the Power Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Power Sanders. Mark Marin. His new special, From Bleak to Dark, is exceptionally funny and profoundly moving. You can watch it now on HBO Max. You can stream WTF with Mark Marin wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Mark for letting us record this conversation at his home. He runs his own board. He made sure I knew that in a text message. And hey, one of the first times I ever talked to Mark was when I was still in college. I'm talking about 20 years ago, doing a fundraising show for the college radio station. Mark was on the phone from Queens, New York. My co-host Jordan and I were at the base of the campus of UC Santa Cruz, the big entrance to the college where all the cars and buses drove past. Mark Marin was fully dressed. We were wearing only our underpants. Uh, we just put together a little selection of some of the great moments from very early in this show's history. That's one of them. Uh, if you're a Maximum Fun member, you can hear it in your members only bonus feed. Go listen to it. Uh, I couldn't bring myself to do so. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, my son just got uh, NBA 2K for our PlayStation and my wife beat me. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson and producers Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music comes from DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme music at the top of the show is by the great band The Go Team. The song is Huddle Formation. Our thanks to The Go Team and thanks to their label Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in all of those places. Give us a follow. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse
0: Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.